our timing was a little off on the Gospel of John. Uh, I didn't hit exactly on Holy Week or for Easter Sunday, um, but I want to continue to work through that. Uh, but I wanted to pick up Luke, include some things, because I know uh, John doesn't, all the Gospels don't include everything. Uh, consistently, you can harmonize the Gospels and get an idea of the events that unfolded on, during Holy Week and the timetable and things like that. But I was really fascinated in my reading uh, of Luke 22, uh, really picking up at the Lord's Supper, beginning in verse 14. But uh, I, there's a lengthy text, so I'll kind of work my way through the text and read some of that, but work my way through the text. But I was really, um, really intrigued uh, in, the, in the way this unfolded. Uh, we do believe that Luke's gospel is probably the most chronological, uh, although I'm not sure that that would be a, a, an absolute statement, but generally speaking, him being a historian, historian and his own introduction in regards to his, his writing seems to be an effort to do that more chronologically. And so I wanted to back up and, and just see the events that he mentioned here. Uh, in verse 14, uh, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, speaking of Christ and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the, one, the hand of one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And this is kind of where my um, intrigue picked up. And they began to discuss among themselves which of them it might be who was going to do this. Now we know, we know earlier that uh, from John's gospel that Jesus actually identified. You remember Peter signaled to John who was nearing Jesus and he signified asking him who it is and, and he lets them know. So at some point they realized it was Judas, but uh, in the chronolog chronology here, it doesn't seem like at this moment they did. It was more general. Uh, the hand of the one who betrays me is with mine on the table. Uh, that could be broad enough to mean everybody at the table, every hand on the table. Uh, or it could have been uh, more along the lines of what John was describing there. The hand with mine uh, is the one that betrays me. But my point is they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also, uh, and that's, that's what piqued my attention. There arose also, now this is unfolding. I don't think there's a break in the time here. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." 
You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then immediately he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, I am with you, ready with you, and I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times, or denied that you know me three times. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bags and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it alone. Likewise, also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me, Jesus says, has its fulfillment. And they said, look, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and proceeded as, he, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. <clears throat> and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were, hurt, were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So that's I read through the entirety of the text, and there's a lot of things we could emphasize here but one of the things that was intriguing me was the conversation with the disciples and Jesus response to that as well and first of all like I said it was in verse 23 which is the discussion so when they hear this uh, I understand at this point at least they Judas has not yet gone out he's still with them there uh, but at this point he says to them Indeed, the Son of Man is going, or for be, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. And then verse 23, they began discussing among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Well, that's important, uh, an important context for what he says next, because somehow that con conversation evolved or devolved, if you will, into a dispute. Because this first one says there's a discussion, verse 23, verse 24, now it's a dispute. And it is among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. Now, I ask Hope this, and, and I will ask you this. Whenever you read about that conversation, about the great, the, the arguing about the greatest, 
Does your mind envision each man making his case for his own greatness? I think generally that's the way we think. Peter would say, well, I'm, I'm the greatest. And the other one would say, no, you're not. I think I'm the greatest. And, and so there may have been this dispute. We view it that way, but I don't think that's the case. I think they were disputing among themselves in the context of what he had just said, uh, and it amounted to who was the greatest. I, I envision it this way. One of you, one of the hands at the table is going to betray me. So we start discussing as much as discreetly as we can out of the presence of Jesus who that might be. And, and somebody looks at Peter and they say, well, it can't be Peter. I mean, he's, he's, ready, he's, he's ready to go die. It can't be James and John. I mean, that's the sons of thunder. It can't be them. And it can't be Judas because he's got the bag and he's trusted with all the money. I mean, the Lord trusts him with the, the entire property of our disciples group here. So it, surely we can rule him out. And it's almost as if they were discussing among themselves in regards to who we could rule out based upon their perception of their greatness. We can rule Peter out. I mean, Peter's, Peter's the strong one. He's the spokesman of us all. He's the, he's the one within the inner circle. He, James, and John. So, so we can rule those three out. And maybe we can even rule Matthew out because he might be the most humble of all, having been a tax collector. And what about Simon the Zealot? What, a zealot's not going to betray him. We could rule the zealot out. What about Judas, the money bag guy? Well, he's the most trusted one among us. He carries the money. And so it seems to me that the discussion in regards to who was the greatest evolved from a discussion of trying to eliminate who it might be that was going to betray him so they could narrow it down to, to, to one of those persons, maybe themselves. I put myself kind of in that conversation because my instinct would have been to look at Peter, look at John, look all around me and think to myself, well, it's not them I might be in the category that does because I know my own heart and I, I'm not a Peter and I'm not a John and I'm not a James and I'm not a Simon and I'm not a Judas. I, I'm, I'm, I may be the one. And so that's the discussion. And so they have this <laughs> discussion in verse 24 rises to the point of a dispute. And notice here it says as well, it, it was a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest not which one was the greatest or what which one claimed to be the greatest but who do we regard as the greatest and apparently the dispute came because maybe somebody said well I think Peter and the other one said no I think John and and so they begin to dispute about which one was the greatest so they're all caught up in this in this discussion in regards of who's the greatest on that paradigm based on the fact that Jesus has just exposed that one among you is going to betray me. And so you, you have to kind of relate to them in some way because he said something stunning here is that one of you in my closest inner circle here is going to betray me. And so they are alarmed enough about that to begin to try to figure out who that was, but they're trying to figure it out in the same way that the world thinks. They're evaluating greatness by all the same characteristics the world uses. And so Jesus addresses that in verse 25. So he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's the, that's the greatness. I thought about that's interesting because... 
those over whom the king resides acknowledge him as their king. You ever wondered this? I've wondered this in all my life, really. Uh, how is it that a nut uh, can ascend to the power, most powerful positions in the world? I think often of Hitler, and I, and I listen to recordings of the speeches, and I'm hearing that, and I'm thinking, well, so, he's, so he's passionate. Is that all it takes? And you remember the people of Israel themselves wanted a king and God gave them a king just like they wanted. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He looked like a king. He fit the part. And so, and so there's this something in us that wants to evaluate greatness according to the way the world does. And that's exactly what Jesus is challenging there. The Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them, they call their benefactors. This is where our livelihood comes from. They are our blessing, our kings that are over us, who lord it over us and are in authority over us. They're the ones through which we profit. It is profitable for us to have them that way. I want the powerful people in charge. And he's saying he's challenging what they're discussing on the basis of how the Gentiles operate. Essentially, I understand that he's saying to them, you're thinking about this in the exact same way that the world's thinking about this. But I've come to introduce to you a completely different paradigm for thinking about greatness. And you're discussing, you're eliminating one another according to what you perceive as their greatness to get to the bottom of who it is is going to betray me. And I'm telling you that you're going to undermine yourself by evaluating in that way. And he goes on to tell them here, verse 26, but it is not this way with you. It's not, it's the wrong paradigm. I mean, that should have, I, I think it did, but it certainly should have ended the conversation. In other words, you're discussing this as though the Gentiles were involved here. That is not the frame of mind by which you need to be evaluating greatness or even trying to answer the question in regards to who it is that will betray me. That is not for you. Let me just insert here, believers, it is not for you either. It is not at all for you to evaluate the great ones among us. I thought about this as an analogy. If, if someone came in now, a prophet from the Lord, and said, one of you in this room under persecution is going to deny Christ even exists. Now, how many of you would be looking at me or looking at other people? I'll just pick on Brian, but how many of us would say, well, I don't know. I think Larry's pretty bold. I, think he, I don't think he would be the one. And somebody else would say, no, I don't know. Brian's, he's quieter and he is not out in public, but he's liable to be the one to hold fast and Larry go the other way. And now we're disputing among what? Who is the greatest of us, judging by what we're observing here? And that's exactly what they were doing. And Jesus says to them, that's not, it's not the way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest. So the youngest would have tended to be uh, more submissive or the youngest would have, been to be, would have tended to be more 
measured, I guess, in his response. You remember the last one who speaks to Job is the youngest of them all, and he lets the other one speak to him first, and finally he's just, his gut's about to bust, and he finally says, you know, I'm younger than you all, and I've listened for wisdom, and I've heard none, and finally now I've, I've just got to speak. I waited my turn, and I subjected to you as my elders. Jesus is saying the greatest among you must become like that to some degree. There's some comparison there. Don't think he's going to be all necessary to the loudest or the first to speak. In fact, he may be quiet and listen to others in that sense. But the greatest among you will exhibit, exhibit some qualities like the younger. And he says, the leader like the servant. Now, if they didn't get that paradigm, that's completely upside down, right? In the, in the Gentiles' way of thinking, the one is greatest will not be like the youngest. He will be like the oldest, and everybody will be considered uh, inferior to him in some way, whether it's in age or in characteristics or qualifications or all those other things. He will be elevated. He will be above and they will be below. But in this paradigm, the one who is greatest shall be the one underneath, uh, carrying, as it were, the others. In the world, the leader is superior to those who serve, right? Right? We have leaders and we build these triangles and we got the leader on top and then there are people under him supporting him. You work on down and we've even carried that paradigm into the church. And that's a wrong paradigm. And Jesus says to them, it is not this way with you. You are a different people. You are of a different kingdom. And it measures greatness in a very different way. Stop taking the world's measures and putting them into the kingdom and evaluating the king, each other in the kingdom on that basis. Because it's not for you. Works for them, not for you. It's exactly what he's saying here. Verse 27, notice the analogy he gives here. For who is the greater? This is by your standards. Who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table and the, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Absolutely. He's the, he's the leader and the servant is serving. He who reclines at the table. Jesus is reclining at the table and there is no doubt that he is the greatest at the table. And what does he say? But I am I am among you as one who serves. In fact, that's exactly what he's getting ready to do. I've not come to be served, but to be served and to give my life a ransom. I mean, he's there reclining at the table as the servant, not as the greatest, but as the servant through which he, he is the greatest. In fact, it demonstrates his greatness is the depth of his servitude. In fact, his obedience to the Father in carrying out that service. So you I hope you see what I'm saying here. Jesus, I think, is speaking directly to this conversation. They began by wondering who it was that was going to betray him, and they reverted to evaluating and trying to identify that person or themselves, perhaps, by looking at the disciples, each of their characteristics and qualities, and grading them according to a scale, and then trying to eliminate the greatest to where they could narrow it down to the few who might and maybe you're included in that or maybe you can rule yourself out that's the whole conversation and so this dispute arises in regards to that and Jesus kills that kills that discussion in a moment by saying to them you're evaluating the wrong way altogether <clears throat> but here's some encouragement <clears throat> in verse 28, 
He immediately goes from that to say to them, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's indicative of greatness. I mean, none of us will be sitting on the thrones of it, uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We may be at the table in the largest sense, in the presence of God, but these will have the immediate seats at the banquet in glory. They have a special place in the Lord's plan and in His decrees here. And he's essentially, essentially undergirding what he's just said. You're measuring greatness the wrong way. Here's how it ought to be measured. In fact, I'm the, I'm the standard by how you measure greatness. Nevertheless, don't look in this world for your, for your reward and for your exaltation. Look into the next world, the world which you will reach by serving as I am serving. And that's exactly what they've done. So he doesn't leave them without hope. This is, to me, this is indicative of the joy set before them. They endure the cross of servanthood in their lives. Let me just say a word about servanthood. You realize, of course, that everything about true servanthood runs against your grain, the grain of your nature. We're not prone, we're not prone to serve. Even if we are docile and, and are easily made to submit, it still isn't a, a heart service. It's, a, it's an oppressed servitude. And that's called slavery. <laughs> we're, not, we're not inclined by nature to be a servant from our hearts. We would rather be served. And so what Jesus is saying goes against everything that is in their nature. They are not by nature servants. And you may, I've heard people say this before, I, I'm, just, I'm just more of a servant heart. I, I think to myself sometimes, I, I know what you mean, but I want to say, no, you're not. If, if you're serving as Christ serves, it is a Holy Spirit, truth-grounded transformation happening in you. Do you really prefer that person over yourself from your heart? If you don't, then that's just lip servant, uh, lip service servanthood. It's a nice thing to say, but be careful about saying I'm servant hearted because your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked and it is not serving in the way that you might think it is. So examine why it is that you're serving and to whose glory it is. So he assures them that there is a, there is a great exalted place for them. But it is not by the world's measure. It is by the measure of the kingdom. And that's, to be honest with you, that's what we ought to be thinking. Uh, you know, I'm always intrigued. You know, Paul speaks about his own apostleships and he says, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. But he says something to me that was stunning after that. He says, but I am not thereby acquitted. My conscience is not the final arbiter of my guilt. I don't know of anything. If I did, I'd repent of it and turn away from it immediately. But I don't know of anything. So I'm living as I believe I ought to be living. But I'm not acquitted by that. There is one who judges me. And that's the one with whom I have to do. And so it should be a humbling, sobering reality for us. Verse 31. I've always wondered when I read this text how it, it just felt like it was out of the blue. Like... Something just occurred to Jesus. Oh, by the way, Simon, 
But it's in, I think it's in complete context. Because who do you think they had in their minds exalted to the greatest part that would dare not, uh, dare not betray Jesus? Don't you think it might have been Peter? And here Jesus turns to Peter in the, in the stream of this conversation and says, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And even then, Peter doesn't seem, still, be, still seems to be resting in his own strength. But he says here, but he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And here's why I think he was great. Because he, believed, he was. I don't doubt what he's saying there in the least. Do you? I do not doubt it. And I don't think they doubted it either. And that's why I think they concluded that perhaps Peter is the greatest among us. And Jesus takes the one that they have concluded is the greatest, turns to him and says, Guess what, Mr. Greatest? Satan has asked to sift you, and I'm going to let him. And the only thing that's going to preserve you is my prayer that your faith may hold. Your strength is not going to be sufficient. And still the greatest insist upon it. I dare not. I will not betray you. I'm ready to go to jail or even to death. I'm not going to be the one who fails even under the sifting of Satan. I, I thought about that passage this morning. I was kind of dwelling on that. And I thought, if I knew, uh, and he does, but if I had a word direct from Christ that says, Larry, Satan has come before me as, as he did Job, and he says, Give me a little room, and I'm going to take Larry down. And I'm going to allow him to do that, Larry. My heart would tremble. And I doubt that I would say anything like Peter just said here. I'd probably be crying out. I'm not going to make it. I am not going to make this. I mean, I haven't been exposed to his direct confrontation uh, maybe in my life, but now you're going to pull back slightly and let him come against me like he did Job or even like he did Peter in this case. I'm not making this statement, and I don't think you would either. And if you did, I'd worry that you were making it out of the same heart, even if with the same conviction as Peter does. But we all need to be reminded that in our daily sifting, as it were, it is the prayer, the intercession of Christ by which our faith holds. And if we go into that depending upon our strength to hold fast to our faith, it's likely that we'll fall. And I'll speak for myself. It would be likely that I will fall. But I think Christ's prayer here for Peter is the same for us in his intercessory mission ministry. Now, 35 through 38 are interesting to me and, and a little complicated and confusing, I'll have to admit. And he says to them, when I sent you out without money, belt, and bag, and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, not a thing. I provided for everything was provided for you by the providential decrees of my Father. I sent you out, you obeyed, you went out, and you... You didn't worry about anything. You didn't worry about money, 
belt, luggage, sandals. You didn't take any kind of weapons. Uh, notice that Jesus did, is not recorded to have carried a sword, but, but apparently two of the disciples did at least. We find out later on. But apparently uh, he was, that was permitted. It was sort of customary. And I'm not talking about a big Roman sword. It was more, we would maybe call it more of a dagger. So he said, you didn't have any of those things, did you? And the answer is no. And the implication is God provided providentially for everything you need to obey me. And I'm here with you. But then, interestingly and confusingly to some degree for me, in verse 36, and he says to them, but now, it's almost like he reverses that. Whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Now, if I didn't have other scriptures, uh, in fact, this very passage, because later on, Peter's got one, <laughs> and, and he apparently uses it. And Jesus tells him, put it up. And also, he says to Pilate, when Pilate says, are you a king or not? Tell me. And he says, you say it correctly, I am a king. And he, but he also says, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my followers would fight. And so it seems to me that there's a principle in regards to the kingdom of God that they don't take up arms in the way that the world does to defend the kingdom. They don't need to. There's nobody greater than the king of the kingdom. His kingdom will stand and, and it will be victorious. And so it's confusing here to me. Some, some writers uh, believe that Jesus is contrasting the difference in the ages now in, in regards to while, while we were ministering and we were popular among the people and they were receiving us and they were receiving healing and the 5,000 were eating and there were miracles and there was high expectations all around. It was a wonderful world. You didn't have to have anything carry with you because wherever you went, the people knew who you were and related you to me and came to you and, and provided for you and you've essentially had it made in many ways. It's as if he's saying that's about to change. Because those people that are crying Hosanna in a few days are going to be crying crucify and they're going to look around to see who was it was along his side as he came down into Jerusalem or came up into Jerusalem and were his disciples. And things are going to be very different from you now. Now when you go out, they're not going to be providing for you. They're not going to be excited about you and expectations are not going to be high. You're going to be, you're going to be the light that shines into the darkness and the darkness they hate. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. So I tend to lean in that direction. Jesus is, is contrasting two different environments completely. And the cross is going to change everything. In fact, I say that partly because of his response. Because they hear this and they say to him in verse 38, Look, look. You can almost hear their excitement. Look, look, we, here's two. We got Eleven disciples with us. Judas has already gone out. We got eleven. And amongst the eleven, we got two swords. What do you think? There's a, there's a horde coming against you with swords. Not to mention the whole Roman Empire. We got two. And I do think Jesus' response is, doesn't mean to say, two's enough. We can take over the world with two swords. 
I don't think that's what he means at all. In fact, I think Jesus, seeing that they have two swords and that they have misunderstood and taken literally what he's saying here and not in the way that I just described, is saying almost as if he's saying enough of this conversation. It's enough. It's enough. You missed it. Let's move on. That's, that's my thinking. Notice as well, move through this maybe more quickly. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes in Luke's gospel to the Garden of Gethsemane now, and he came out and proceeded as his custom was to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And this was part of the intrigue as well. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. What was the temptation? Was it to run away? Uh, could be to deny him. And Jesus, Peter's going to get sifted, and perhaps to some degree the other disciples are as well. But Jesus is already assured uh, by the Father's will that they're going to smite the shepherd and the sheep are going to be scattered. So he's about their preservation here. That doesn't relieve them of their reason, their own motivation for fleeing or denying or whatever they're going to do. But the events that are going to be unfolding are going to be temptations to you. So why are you sleeping? Stay here and pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. And I don't have sin in my life. So how much more ought you to be praying because the temptation is coming upon you? Verse 41 says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray. Another gospel says he took Peter, James, and John a little farther and then went a little farther from them. And he knelt down to pray. In verse 42, and he was saying in his prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I think you could make the case the cup involved there is the wrath of God that he was about to drink on behalf of sinners. Now an angel, John Luke tells us, from heaven appeared to him, strengthened him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He says here from sorrow, perhaps sorrow in regards to what was going to unfold, or we're not told exactly what's motivating the sorrow here. Is it sorrow about the rebuke they just received in regards to the discussion about greatness? Is it sorrow in their discussions about that, or their, maybe by now their knowledge that one of, <clears throat> one of those among them was a betrayer? We're not told exactly what the sorrow was, but we are told that they were sleeping. And Jesus says to them again, get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here's, here's what my, my idea, my understanding of the temptation that was going to come upon them was to fight. To fight. I mean, they're here. Jesus says, I'm going up to Jerusalem, going to be handed over to the, to the Jews and ultimately to the Romans and be crucified and the third day rise again. We're going into Jerusalem and they're going to, they're going to be crying crucify and not Hosanna. I mean, he's already done that, but they're going to be cried, crucify. I'm going to trial. I'm going to be crucified here. And they're still with him. In fact, Peter's saying things such as bold, so bold as to say, I'll go to jail and even to death. I'm not going anywhere, Jesus. They're there. And then while all this is happening, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. 
What, what an injury. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now this is where I think the way I do. Verse 49, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? That's the temptation. I think that was what he's saying. You need to pray. Because I know in your flesh you guys are all worked up here and, and you're grieving about things and you're sorrowful, but you've all vowed, even hearing Peter's statement, you've all vowed that you're going to stay with me to the very end. And they've already pulled out and counted up their arms among them and they've come up with two swords. If we can get two swords swinging and the rest of them rush, we can, we can keep these people away from our Lord. Shall we fight? That's the temptation. Why are you sleeping? That's the way your heart is. That's where your heart is and your sleep. Are you going to fight now to hinder that hour for which I've come into the world? You need to be praying, not sleeping, because your impulse is to be fighting. And there is going to be no fighting tonight. In fact, you're all going to flee away by God's own decree so that you'll be preserved to bring this gospel to the world. So there's not going to be any fighting tonight. Verse 50, Peter, true to his character, one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. So while some of them are asking, shall we strike, one's already taken to striking. Peter must not have asked. In fact, I almost imagine that he was already drawing it out and moving that direction when they asked, should we fight? Peter's already fighting. <laughs> he's already got it out. And he's, he means business. Because apparently, maybe the guy seen it came and he moved his head at the last minute and it took his ear instead of hitting him across the front of the forehead. But whatever the case, it removed the ear of this servant in the garden, Malchus, we know his name to be. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 51, I love the force of this. Jesus answered when he saw what unfolded there and said, Stop! I can imagine he said it that way. Stop! No more of this! This is not the way the kingdom operates. We, we rely on a power beyond the power of the sword and the power of the human will and the power of human determination. We rely upon the power of God and the certainty that the word of God will be fulfilled. Stop this. I think, let me say this carefully. There are places in our culture today where we ought to be engaged. But those, those fringes of the Christian, professing Christians that are taking up a more militant kind of position, uh, I would hear Christ saying the same thing here. Stop! None of that. None of that. In fact, I have to strain, restrain myself sometimes because I am by nature compelled to want to demand my rights. You are invading upon my rights as an American. I am a citizen of the kingdom first. And that doesn't guarantee me American freedom all of my days. And so I have to be careful in that. And certainly, Christians, we ought to be careful in any insinuation that we must take up the sword now to defend the kingdom. Jesus told Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my people would fight. Now, on the flip side of that, do I believe in a righteous war and a taking up of arms? I do. 
I do. If the acts of this one intending evil becomes a threat and to take the lives of many who are not against him in any way, I feel as though I would not be a proper steward of those under my care if I didn't stop the one trying to do them harm, even death. And on that principle, I do believe in just war theory. I may be wrong, and I may get to the heaven, and the Lord says, Larry, stop that. <laughs> don't do that. Maybe, but I don't, I don't believe Christians ought to be sitting by passively when they have an opportunity to press back against those violations of human rights, really. So that's the other side of that coin. Let me finish. Jesus says, verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, notice here how they came out with all the world's implements. Have you came out with swords and clubs as you would a robber? Am I, am I a threat to you and you employ secular means to come against this threat? You've had your opportunity to engage in regards to the scriptures and you've had no answers. And so you've taken up now the weapons of the world, the sword of the world, and not the sword of the word because you don't know how to, you don't know the word. So you abandoned that weapon, that offensive weapon against me, and you've taken up the secular, the literal sword, and you've come out against me. And he says to them, while I was daily with you in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But then he ends as if he's in some sense turning over, turning it over to them in some degree. We know that he eventually, in John, uh, he says to them, if you come after me, then let these go and they go away. But he says here at the end of this, but this, this hour, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. You're going to succeed in what you're aiming to do here you want me dead you want me crucified and this is your hour and this is your darkness you will be successful in your task so no need for swords or clubs no need to harm these others I'm the one you want this is your hour the darkness is yours you are going to be successful he's almost assuring them that there's not going to be any resistance here I am going as a sheep led to slaughter. I'm not going to cry out. I'm not going to demand my rights. Even though I am unjustly accused and being murdered unjustly, I am not going to insist upon my rights because this is the hour for which I have come into the world. So even though the darkness and the hour is yours, the, 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 the events are my father's and I am bound to obey him all the way to the point of death. That's a different world, folks. That's a different world altogether. So this conversation, if you don't get anything, just hear this. This is not just some filler stuff to get to the cross. This is critical in understanding for the disciples and even for us today what the cross was going to do. What was going to be accomplished through the cross. And that accomplishment last to this very day and will forever so thank you for your attention I think uh, I'm over time so let's pray Father thank you for your word Lord thank you for the reminder that we are much like the disciples we we even are prone to think of our 
greatness according to the level of our devotions. We look at others and we say, oh, I wish I was um, devoted in that way, and they're much greater than I. And, Lord, we're using the world's standards. If there is a faithful devotion, and if it is a true God-honoring devotion, it is a devotion brought about by a transformed heart, brought about by the cross. Father, and the root of that was Christ serving, giving up his own life. So, Father, if we take anything tonight, help us take away what it is to be a servant in the pattern of Christ himself. Bless those who've come tonight, Lord, to help us as we continue to walk with you and continue to try to understand and to grow. And, Lord, help us to be reminded at times we're like Peter and in times we, we can even be like Judas and Father, we thank you that you've given us a promise that you who have begun a good work in us will complete that work until the day of Christ. Lord, we look forward to the day when that work will find its completion and we shall be like Christ. Bless those who've come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.